0: Jason and I started dating when we were 15 years old, and anyone who has ever done it knows what I'm talking about when I say that we became each other's family, because that's what happens when you hold hands with someone through the transformation and evolution of the child to adult years. We weren't sure where one of us started and where the other ended. We were married on May 1st, 1999, when we were 20 and 21 years old. And then had our first son Jake in September of 2000. Some people get married for all the right reasons and it doesn't work out. Some people get married for all the wrong reasons and it settles in like a pair of well-worn leather boots. I'm not sure why our marriage didn't work out in the end. I mean I can speculate and I have no doubt that there are a few friends and family members that can and most certainly have cast their votes. But at the end of the day, I mean, who really gives a shit why? One person's why could be another person's grace. Baking bread at an elevation of 8,000 feet is a lot different than baking bread at sea level. But bakers in either state are still liable to start a goddamn fire in the kitchen. Divorce is ugly. As Chris Farley often said, that's gonna leave a bit of a mark but I'm thankful for the part Jason and his family played in my life. There are a few of them that I miss so much that my chest physically hurts. I'm over the frigging moon for the kids that Jason gave me, and I know he is too. They're incredible people. I love how, though, even though we've started new chapters, by the gift of grace, we are still able to flip back to the dog-eared pages and inhale the familiar scent of all the good times. Jason and I were fresh off the blocks living in a townhouse in Walnut Grove, having no clue about marriage or life or budgets. We were only 21 for crying out loud. We were still squeezing blackheads and eating alphagetti for dinner. After a few months of married life, I pretty much got pregnant with Jake, which threw me into a fit of holy shit, where I tried to balance my post-secondary education with cravings for egg salad sandwiches. I got through it by compulsively cleaning and organizing our wedding gifts and junk drawers. One insomniacal night, I decided to clean out our bedside tables, dump the contents into black garbage bags, and toss them out onto the edge of our driveway for the next day's garbage pickup. But what I didn't anticipate was the scene we'd find the next day. In the morning, everything was fine when we left for school. But when we got back, Our garbage had been ripped open by crows and its contents strewn across our driveway and roadway. You see, Jason's bedside table drawer had been packed full with two things, condom wrappers and Q-tips, because, well, we had sex, and also he had some weird itchy ear problem. I'd have to spend our grocery budget on Costco-sized boxes of Q-tips, and he'd use every single one of them every single night. I didn't ask. I was just like, whatever. Weird, but whatever. But then here we were, standing in our driveway, like, oh my god. Because having thousands of condom wrappers and Q-tips all over the place, with bits blown over onto our neighbor's driveways, and all over the roadway was, like, super awkward. Everyone probably thought we had a super crazy penis swab fetish. We didn't. But we laughed, which is pretty much what gets us through all the things, right? Because we all have those bedside tables filled with condom wrappers and Q-tips. We all do. Let it go. Let's let the crows have it. I don't like being told what to do and when to do it. I will love when I damn well want to love, and in fact, if I had a choice, if I were not whatsoever dictated by my moods, hormones, the moon, or whether or not I can feel crumbs under my bare feet when I'm making coffee at 6 a.m., then purely out of spite, I would gather up all three of my hateful thoughts and exercise them on one day each and every year for eternity, February 14th. Jason and I always hated Valentine's Day. Not because we didn't love each other, but because it felt rebellious and fun to be grouchy about such a frilly holiday. We'd wear black and sloth around, kicking shadows on the streets. But eventually, we'd retrieve our cards and gifties for each other and exchange them in mock resignation. He always blew it. One year, he bought me a garburator, a garbage disposal for the sink. I was like, Wow. Another year he ran out in the last second to the drugstore 30 steps away from our front door and bought me a box of old lady chocolates. The box was covered in floral wallpaper and the chocolates themselves tasted like some sort of edible oil product. I kept turning the box over to look for the attached potpourri packets filled with rose and lavender beads. We were like 12 when we got married so he got away with it. Whatever you do or whatever you buy for your love on Valentine's Day or any day of the year for that matter, if it comes easy, then it's probably lame as fuck. I can't even believe I'm going to reference a Bible story right now, but believe it, I am. There's a story of when Jesus asked a bunch of people to give him money or something. And this rich guy gave him a shitload. But then this poor widow gave him two tiny, pathetic little copper coins. And Jesus was like, Whoa. The rich guy didn't even feel it, but the woman gave all that she had in faith or in love. Love smarts a little, it leaves a mark. A mother is bent sideways, balancing life on one hip, edges rounded by the delicious fruit of love. A mother carries the weight of her heart, her children, and when love gets too heavy, She lowers her heart deep down into the cells of each emotional and physical and spiritual muscle ever flexed within her, and she draws upon a strength conceived in the exact second that she became mother. And from that strength, with the grunts and groans of childbirth, pained and exhausted, she heaves life back into her children. Their frail limbs, once quivering with the weight of their worlds, Silently, from behind like a breeze, her love lifts them up and guides them forward. I became a mother at the age of 22. The shift from a life focused on Susie toward a life focused on my child served to carve out parts of me that I didn't know existed. An operation of sorts carried on without anesthetic or any hopes of morphine, recovery, or regained mobility. Running marathons helped me to see the rigors of motherhood in the big picture, that the hard work pays off, the painful moments eventually pass, and a little throw-up never hurt anyone. But it's such a thankless job, isn't it? Our efforts are a well-kept secret from the rest of humanity, like a private club in which the initiation would buckle the strongest of knees. But what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. We don't do it for recognition, no. And we certainly don't do it for the fame and fortune. We do it for love. When our children, teetering on spindly legs, venture out into the big world and find their strength waning, they'll be able to look back home and feel the warm wind of our love holding them up and pushing them forward. Our oldest son, Jake, was born in September of 2000 when I was 22 years old. I went into labor with him when I was only 30 weeks pregnant so I was hospitalized for a week and put on bed rest for the remainder of my pregnancy. And of course, Jake ended up arriving a week after his due date. The birth went smoothly and everyone was so excited for our new addition. I couldn't stop staring at his little face. I was so in love. I had gained 30 pounds during my pregnancy and had lost over 20 pounds by the time I came home from the hospital. My boobs were huge, my belly was squishy, and my heart was full. Then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because I knew that in two to three hours I would need to get up to Nurse Jake and so my mind and body wouldn't settle. I stayed awake until the next feeding, thinking I would for sure fall asleep after that one. I didn't. I stayed awake until the next one, and the next, and the next. I was awake for an entire weekend, pale and cold with anxiety levels so high that I felt like I was dying. My skin was cool and damp and I had dropped five pounds in three days. I brought Jake to his checkup and my doctor took one look at me and made a phone call to the reproductive psychiatry clinic at BC Women's Hospital in Vancouver and got me an emergency appointment. My visit with the psychiatrist went well. I was desperate for relief, and she wrote me a prescription for Ativan and Paxil. It took a while for the Paxil to make a difference. On average, the first week of side effects are horrible, but then just as they start to go away, the benefits of the medication start kicking in at around three to four weeks. I hung in there and only took an Ativan when I really needed it, but get this, I was too anxious to take the Ativan. My weight was below my pre-pregnancy weight with all of this stress, but once my medication started to work, I began to enjoy food again and my appetite leveled out. I so desperately needed the relief that the Paxil gave me that I didn't even care about the whole medication thing or the stigma attached to it. I couldn't give a shit. I needed it so damn bad. I felt like Susie again. I smiled more. I laughed my big laugh. I held Jake closer, breathed him in deeper, loved him larger. I was back. And then, of course, I got pregnant with Freddie. I wrote this on May 21st, 2013. Eleven years ago tonight, I was sitting in the leather recliner across from my mum, while Jake was fast asleep in his big boy bed. I was two weeks away from my due date and feeling every ounce of baby pushing against my insides, begging for respite from the strain. We had just moved into our new house, and because it was new construction, we hadn't had the chance to get window coverings up yet. Hot and uncomfortable, I climbed into bed and then felt my water break. Like a whale in a fishbowl, I tore around the house looking for the phone to tell Jason that my water broke, and when he got home in the 5.3 seconds it took him to drive home from Eric's house, we took off for the hospital. Freddie was born a short time thereafter, and our lives then changed forever. He was a quiet baby, huge, but quiet. He lay there, eyes wide and watery, his lips plump, cradling the light of the heat lamps. Back in my arms, he remained as peaceful as ever, blinking up at me with expectation and knowing. There's just some things we know like gravity and a parent's love and Freddie knew it that morning just as sure as he knows it now in his bed 11 years later. When I think about Freddie, my mind and heart fill with constancy, steadiness, strength, quiet sensitivity, empathy, the gentle leader. He won't fight to be heard, but when he speaks, we better listen. Freddy knows how to love. He makes mistakes and he's made some big ones, oh, some big ones, but he knows and his heart breaks for them. His gentle presence moves mountains. His very first word was from my dad, Rumpa for grandpa. He'd spot my dad from a mile away and his raspy little voice demanded my father's arms. He'd point at him, nod and blink in assertive expectation, Rumpa, and there my dad would melt every time my life is full of twists and turns of endings and new beginnings but my children will always be my light eyes wide and watery lips plump and cradling the light of the heat lamps i'm right here arms open freddie got diagnosed with a blood disorder when he was just over one year old He got a cold, which turned into a cough, which turned into pneumonia, and his little body was working too hard making red blood cells to fight the pneumonia. It's a rare hereditary blood disorder, and I'm so thankful that it hasn't affected his life too much. Once in a while, when his body can't keep up with the rapid rate of red blood cell destruction, we bring him to the hospital for blood work and, if need be, transfusions. There's this image in my mind. No, it's not just in my mind it's in the gap between my skin and memory my senses and instincts that space that juts out into our lives whether we want it to or not like a sharp rock between here and there a space where we can either stand upon or lose ourselves on and it's of freddy's tiny toddler body bound in a hospital bedsheet, in a way that kept him still long enough to give blood for tests he was too young to understand that we bound him to help him he fought hard against us against that binding force his iron will flexing and pushing the angst inside his body practically bursting through his skin and all i could do was stand there and helplessly watch him fight i've seen this scene manifest in different ways with each child it's not a hospital sheet in an emergency room it's on a couch It's in the principal's office, it's in a restaurant, it's at home, it's here and there and everywhere in between, but to me it looks the same. That my child's angst is practically bursting through their skin and all I can do is stand there and helplessly watch them fight. I want to unzip the gap, gather my babies in my arms and duck us all down beneath the great divide between here and there, stand on that rock and no peace." To close up the unknown and lie still in the safety of love where there is no pain, there's no fight, there's no angst, but then there is no growth. Once I had been on antidepressants for a while, I felt like I could finally feel the energy of my truest self flowing through my actions without having to first pass through the filter of anxiety. Having anxiety is like standing beside a cock blocker at a bar. You wanna go out and have some fun, but a really mean, ugly girl keeps clinging on to you, making the both of you completely unapproachable. Oh wow, I should be a doctor. Anyway, the medication was golden, bottom line, but the side effects were a bit shady. Where it normally took me three and a half minutes to have an orgasm, it took me a week and a half to have one on medication. All of my senses were dulled and anyone out there on SSRIs knows exactly what I'm talking about. I remember sitting in my doctor's office and telling him that the whole world could be dying around me and I just feel like, oh well. And it's not like I was taking too many milligrams as it took me many months to find the right dose to give me relief. These are just the side effects, side effects that were totally worth it because the pros outweighed the cons a zillion to one. I also gained a bit of weight but I have to say that I loved it. I loved my big boobies and my squishy belly. There was no greater joy than holding my two boys on my lap while I read them a book. I was soft for their little bodies. I was mummy and I was perfect. We got pregnant again and then lost that baby. Then pregnant again and Katie was born in 2005. The boys started school We moved out to Abbotsford, and in about 2008, Jason and I decided that we needed to see a counselor for our marriage. Once we started counseling, it became very apparent that I needed therapy for my own shit. And so while I started digging deep and working on my life, my anxiety started to alleviate. Over the course of the next two years, I went down on the Paxil and up on the psychotherapy. By the year 2010, I was no longer taking medication, all the while going through the toughest time of my life. Support from my counselor, family and friends, long-distance running, and also the new skills I had acquired in coping with irrational thought patterns got me through that phase of my life and made my once-fragile mind much stronger. My chest wrings its muscles in angst. My eyes are flecked with worried wet and it's all I can do to tame it, hold it back, rein it in until I get there. I do all the right things. I shoulder check, signal, calmly pull into my spot with my jaw flexed into a peace-forced half-smile while my muscles twitch with emotional overload. Collecting myself, adjusting the tongue of my shoes, I set my eyes on the path ahead and take names. One step to start two to keep me going, and then it's no turning back, not for a while, not until I'm finished pouring myself out, fertilizing the forest with my heart. A burn pile's smoke pulls my gaze to the right, interrupting my rhythmic breath for a moment while I draw it slowly in and up, an eagle, chest out and proud. I lift my own in hopes that I too might be recognized as supreme, and then a second later I trip on a root and instead promptly remember my humility. My feet take me to places in my heart that not even flight could bring. I run and I run and I run, and when I find what I'm looking for, I don't stop and turn around. No, I hold it close. I let it in and turn it around until it warms and molds to who I am, becoming a part of me, and then I carry it home. It's a bit heavier, but I'm a bit stronger, so it all evens out.